Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. In case you're wondering, it's right after 1 Samuel. David has been anointed king, but only to a partial reign, which means he was just king over one tribe, Judah. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is king over the other 11 tribes of Israel. Last week, we noted that Abner, the commander of Saul's army and Saul's cousin, made Ishbosheth king. This was an open act of rebellion against God because God had made it plain to Saul and everyone around him, including Abner, that David was the one that God had chosen to be king. We're covering a very large section today, 60 verses, for several reasons. We can get the whole story about Abner this way, who dominates chapters 2 and 3. But it's not until the middle of chapter 3 that we see what's really going on with Abner. It's in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and also verse 18, that we finally see just how much Abner actually knew about what God had promised, and how even knowing what God's will was, that didn't deter him from seeking his own way and his own desire. We also gain much insight into Joab, who is David's army commander, and also his nephew. Joab and his counterpart, Abner, were really not that different. Both tried to force their will and their desire upon the political scene and also on the personal scene. We're going to see a lot about Joab all the way through 2 Samuel. He unwaveringly served David, but this guy was not above personal vengeance and treachery and severe ruthlessness. He was the ultimate warrior, as he demonstrated over and over and over again. But he too often let his own personal passions and his own understanding overrule God's ways and purposes. Now, in our passage today, Abner is murdered by Joab. And later, Joab is executed by the order of King Solomon. Now, you can, that covers a lot of ground. But remember, Abner started off as Saul's army commander. Joab is David's. So we just heard that King Solomon, obviously much later, executed Joab. And you might be wondering why. Well, in David's last words, right before he died, he gave some instructions to Solomon. And he said this, Moreover, you, Solomon, also know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, 
Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. So here's what he says. Solomon, act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. You read a little farther. Joab finds out about this. He thinks he can stay safe by running into the sanctuary. Didn't work. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in instructions from Solomon, went up and struck him down and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Now that's much, much later in the book, but we're getting the big picture today. Back to Abner. Abner has three main failures, and that's one way to uh, divide this passage up that we're in today. Chapter 2, verse 12, is where we begin, and we're going all the way through chapter 3. So, how can we divide it? Abner's three main failures. Now, in the rest of chapter 2 here, from 12 to the end of chapter 2, verse 12 on, Abner attacks and fails. And what this illustrates is what resisting the kingdom by force looks like. Then beginning in chapter 3, the first 11 verses, Abner plots and fails. And this illustrates seeking the kingdom out of necessity, uh, no, we could say that, seeking God's kingdom for all the wrong reasons. And then in the last part of chapter 3, from verse 12 on, Abner negotiates and fails. And that is really illustrated by Joab's subverting the kingdom by his revenge. So... Attacks and fails, plots and fails, negotiates and fails. It's a long, long section. We're going to make sense of this together this morning. Now, the thing to remember off the bat is that Abner did know what the Lord had promised to David. The kingdom. And in spite of knowing what God had promised... He tried every way he could to manipulate what God had said he would do. He tried using force. He tried plotting and scheming. And then he tried to negotiate it. In the end, what happens? God establishes David's reign as king over all of Israel. And that's in chapters 5 to 7 where all that really happens. So what's the point? The point for all of us is this. Only God's promise will rule. Despite all the opposition and scheming and foolishness, God's promise comes to pass anyway. What came about for David was according to God's decree and his sworn purpose. But not because Abner lent his lent God his army, 
but because God against and without Abner brings to pass what he purposed to do. This is what we need to see and understand in these chapters, that only God's promise will rule. Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., and the executive director of a ministry many of y'all have heard of and probably use is Nine Marks Ministry, published a two-volume series of sermons in which he preached one sermon over each book of the entire Bible. The Old Testament volume is entitled Promises Made. Can you guess what the New Testament volume is? Promises Kept. He gets it. This is the unified, overarching message and theme of the whole Bible. No person can thwart the fulfillment of God's promise. Something we all need to keep in mind. Peter's statement in his sermon in Acts 2, verse 23, really sums up this idea very concisely. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You get both sides of that? God ordered the death of his son, but the immediate perpetrators bear the guilt for crucifying Jesus. God ordains the means as well as the ends of human events without violating human freedom and responsibility. Only God Almighty could accomplish this. Only God Almighty can thwart the designs of sinful people who want to defeat God's purposes and yet use the designs of sinful people to actually accomplish His purposes. We have a great God. People are, are responsible for their actions and sins. Yet, God's promise will be kept no matter what we may do. God's people today must look at these Old Testament episodes and remember them, for sometimes nothing looks so unlikely and impossible and remote to us as the day when Jesus will return in glory and things will be made right. The not yet will arrive and join up with the already. That's what he promised. And it will happen because he promised it. And no Abner and no Joab or any other being in the universe will be able to stop it. So, now we'll have an adventure. I think what would be best is if I read, and you'll stand in just a moment, the rest of chapter 2, and then I'll let you sit down, and then I'll tear through chapter 3. 
Because if you don't read all this before I start, you're going to be going, now where was that? Now where was that? When did he do that? Ooh, I, I, don't let the kids hear that part. Then the whole thing, this is a wild section. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 32 to begin. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Hethketh. Hezurim, which is at Gibeon, and the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruah, David's sister, were there, Joab, Bishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right nor the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Emma which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. 
And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And now I'll go on. Are you ready? There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine, his name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth. Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal pay- price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her weeping after, all, after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to Hebron to David, At Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, For he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. 
When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or holds a spindle or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, the litter. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept, and the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Wow. That didn't keep you awake. I don't know what would. So first, let's go back to chapter two and look at how Abner attacks and fails. We must be clear about something here. Abner is the aggressor in this conflict. He takes the offensive. Abner is the one who brought an army from the north into southern territory, not that far from where David was. And he was trying to forcefully impress his will against what he knew God had decreed. This is an incredible bloodbath that's really described in some detail, at least the first part is. 
it's that first part there is kind of a representative one-on-one -on -one combat. In other words, in instead of letting both armies go full-blown at it, it's kind of like what David and Goliath had going way back. They picked a couple of representatives of each army and let them go. Every one of them died. When each pair got to the battle, each one's sword killed the other one. There wasn't anybody left. So then the big battle started after that. The large-scale conflict took off because it was a tie, and, you know, you have to have overtime. What happened? Abner and his men were soundly beaten in that larger conflict. They were on the run, which is why we read about these guys chasing them. In verse 18 of chapter 2, we learn that Joab has two brothers and that these two, three brothers were David's nephews. Abishai, we've already met. Remember him? The mighty man who went with David to sneak into Saul's camp, took his sword and his water bottle, didn't let him know about it. That's Abishai. Asahel's story is tragic, is it not? And his death at the, end of Abner, at the hand of Abner is what fueled Joab's fierce vengeance. As Asahel pursued Abner, Abner did try to warn him. In fact, we read he tried to warn him several times not to pursue him anymore, which was actually a gracious act by Abner at that point. But Asahel wouldn't stop. Abner was an army commander for a reason. Asahel was no match for him. In verses 31 and 32, we see the results of all this. Abner lost 360 men, David only 20. So then we start chapter 3, and we see Abner plotting and failing. This is seeking the kingdom by necessity and for all the wrong reasons, and that will be explained in just a second. But first, a few comments on the list that we see in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, which is of the sons born to David while he ruled from Hebron. Notice that there are six sons, and I'm sure you noticed that each was born to a different mother, which raises all sorts of questions. The first one there is Amnon. We learn later that this is the son who rapes his sister and is killed by Absalom. Absalom then later leads a rebellion against his father David and is eventually killed by Joab. And Adonijah, who's mentioned here, rebels against David in response to a decree that Solomon will succeed David. Hear that? Solomon, who isn't even on the scene yet, this is much later, is decreed to be the next king reigning after David. And who's a little jealous about this? A lot of his sons, but Adonijah especially. And he's eventually then, Adonijah is, executed by Solomon after David dies. And you thought your family had issues. We can say, honestly, much of this is the consequence of a man having more than one wife. But there's all sorts of other things going on here. This is all the, also one of the reasons why the text starts out and says that the, the house of David was growing stronger. Lots of sons means stronger in these terms. David's multiple marriages violated Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17. However, the writer of 2 Samuel is primarily concerned in this text 
about highlighting David's growing strength, many sons especially, not his errors here. So the author doesn't moralize on this point, but readers, we, we should not be blind to it either. Taking multiple wives was common for kings then, but violated the the clear biblical command. Kings took wives more to cement alliances many times than to satisfy lust. One example is right here in this list. David's marriage to Maaka. See that? Absalom's mother. This made Geshur his ally. Geshur was located northeast of the Sea of Galilee. You got that picture in your head? And you might remember that Ishbosheth's headquarters were in a place called Mahanaim, which was just south of where this is. So what did David just do? He made an alliance with a bunch of people who were on the backside of where Ishbosheth's headquarters were. Here's David down here. All this is Ishbosheth. He makes an alliance through marriage with these people up here. Strategy, guys understand this. So do you girls. You're just sneakier about it. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 6, we should notice the ongoing war between the house of Saul and the house of David. The comment in the last part of verse 1 is important, and David grew stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And this fact is reflected next in Abner's politically fueled beef with Ishbosheth. Abner sees the tide turning. So he naturally tries to do what? Change the alignment, his alignment. Who he's aligned with. And he does this so that he will not only benefit, but so that he can be seen as the person who helps the most in bringing about what he knows God has decreed. I hope you don't know anybody like this. We all can be like this. Self-serving, manipulation, political savvy. All he really is concerned about is his position. Abner uses a charge leveled at him by Ishbosheth to switch his allegiance over to David. We don't know whether this charge that Ishbosheth charges him with was true or not, which I won't repeat again. Once was too much. But Abner's anger over this and his change of allegiance, we do see. It scared Ishbosheth to death. And Ishbosheth did not utter another word after, after Abner's retort here. Notice that Abner only quotes God's word when it supports a pro-Abner move. Now we jump into Abner negotiating and seeing how really it all fails. In other words, this is we see what vengeance does from actually his enemy, Joab, who he's going to be aligned with, at least by word here in just a second, how that subverts the kingdom. 
So in verses 12 through 39 of chapter 3, we see that Abner lets David know that he's now on his side. But more than that, Abner presents himself as who? The man. The man who can deliver what God has decreed. Do you see that? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. David has an absolute condition as he heard this offer that might surprise us. Some of you know what's going to happen with all this, but here we go. And his condition is that Michael, his first wife, be returned to him. Which, by the way, was not unlawful because they never were divorced. She was removed, not at David's hand, but by we-know-who. Michael had been a political pawn of her father, Saul, when Saul was trying to entrap David. We remember that? But from 1 Samuel 18, in verse 20 and 28, we read there something. From those two verses, we know that Michael actually did love David, even though she had been a pawn to get Saul's way that also didn't work. All of Saul's plans to get rid of David by scheming, etc., had come to nothing. Remember this? David met the price of this bride, Michael, as dictated by Saul in the mutilation of a hundred Philistines, and David delivered twice that many. And so Saul was bound. He had to keep his promise, at least partly at first, And he gave Michael to be married to David. And Saul, of course, had hoped that all this bride price thing with the Philistines would get rid of David way back when. Saul offered Michael to David as a snare. We actually read in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 18. But Michael loved David and so did her brother Jonathan. Strange families we're talking about. There remained nothing for Saul to do back then except openly try to kill David. That's when Saul wasn't trying to hide it anymore. Openly trying to kill David. So David's demand for his wife also had some strategy in it. Maybe a whole lot. It would serve as a political plus. How? Since once again it will be seen as an alliance of David over part of the house of Saul. Yeah, I'm confused too. No, not really, but this is political stuff, so you've got to kind of keep it in mind as we go through here. And then we're told three times that Abner left these discussions with David, and this is interesting, in peace. Look at verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. Every time they had a discussion about what was going to happen now, It says he left in peace. Why is that emphasized? Because this means that Abner left in security. He was granted safe conduct. Remember, this was everybody's enemy up until this little offer and change of allegiance. This explains why the battle-hardened Abner, who was not naive, we know that, was so unsuspecting when Joab goes after him. He didn't have a clue what Joab was getting ready to do. 
Joab does kill Abner. We could say that Joab's dagger was concealed behind David's promise of safety. In other words, Joab executed the most sinister kind of treachery possible. Coming up in supposed loyalty and friendship, pulling the dagger and killing him on an unsuspecting victim. So we must ask then, okay, what is Joab's problem? Why did he, why did he kill Abner? And the text makes this very clear in verse 27 and verse 30. Joab killed David for the blood of Asahel, his brother, whom Abner had killed in the earlier battle. And maybe, too, could Joab have also thought that David's peace with Abner, Saul's military commander, Ishbosheth's commander, who actually put Ishbosheth in power, Joab had to be thinking that this peace would result in Abner's maybe probable what? Promotion as the new commander of David's forces? Joab probably was thinking that because he was the commander of David's forces. How could this work? Are you asking that question? I'm, I'm asking this through this whole thing. How could any of this work? This is scheming beyond all belief here. Would Abner replace Joab as commander? So there are these possible ulterior motives, but the real reason that Joab killed Abner was for his own personal vengeance because, listen, Asahel's death should not have been avenged since Abner killed Asahel in battle. And only after giving Asahel multiple warnings to back off, had it been murder or even manslaughter, Joab would have had grounds for vengeance, according to Numbers 35 even. But it was neither. Joab settled public battles with private vendettas. That's kind of his... M.O. Next we see David defending his lack of knowledge of what Joab did. And David is adamant about this. And then finally we see David mourning over Abner's death, which he then demands that the people do too. And the result is amazing in verses 36 through 39. And the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king, king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. In other words, they knew this was Joab's personal vengeance. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king, these men... The sons of Zeru are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to wickedness. David, how many times have we seen David lamenting and genuinely sorrowful over the death of his greatest enemies? This speaks a whole lot to what the Lord says about 
This is a man whose heart is after the Lord. Saul. Now Abner. Now the question for us as we read and study this extended passage is, do we, do we marvel that God's promise to David ever does come to pass? Just if you've made a list of all the obstacles and the weird things that have happened in circumstances about God's promise to David being fulfilled, I mean, it's getting really long. It's kind of like the promises made that the Messiah would come and Satan's attempt to ruin it at every step of the way. It tells you something about who our God is and how faithful he is and how mighty he is. We, all we've seen this morning is people who resist the kingdom promise by force, people who seek the kingdom promise for the wrong reasons, just so they'll live. Yay, David. Yeah, God promised this. I'm on your side now. I'm people who are only concerned about their own kingdom. Yet even for all the opposition, scheming, and foolishness, God's promise comes to pass anyway. Now on the other side of that coin, we must realize that we share the same kind of sinful nature that Abner displays. We are vulnerable to sin's stupidity, its perversity, and its general twistedness. And we've got to deal with it by the blood of Christ and His Spirit, and be honest about it, run to the cross, get His wisdom from His Scripture, and stand up to it, resist the Satan's attempt to war against us in this way. Wise. Biblically wise. So, can we still learn anything from Abner? What do you think? Look at our world. Look at our great society that has enjoyed the blessings of the Lord longer than any place on the face of the earth for so long. Do we see these same elements everywhere? More and more, do we not? Is God still in control? Yes. Does he still have a purpose for me and you, your family? Yes. We also have to realize that it is possible to know what the truth is, but not embrace it. We have to realize that it's possible to quote the truth, but not submit to it. And we have to realize that it's possible to hold it, be a part of it, and yet assault it by our words and by the way we live. That's some heavy lessons to head to lunch. This was a wild passage. God's word, he put in here everything he wanted us to know about these circumstances to make us wise, to make us discerning, to make us see our need for him and to put our trust in the one who works through all these circumstances stances to bring about what? What he promised. 
which will Jesus will come back. And in the meantime, he's got us. He's got us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a passage in your word. Help us see the main points so that we can uh, see your hand in working through events that, that are horrible to accomplish purposes that only you could accomplish, that men are responsible for sin, and yet nothing, nothing can block, nothing can end, nothing can keep from happening the promises that you bring in your Son. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as your people, and we pray for the wisdom to be able to see the core problems in the hearts of man, sin, what it will look like, what the only, only answer is, is your son Jesus. And we pray that we could live in light of those facts and not be overwhelmed by despair or lose confidence in that you're working or anything else that would deter from us enjoying to see your power, your faithfulness, your love for us in Jesus Christ, your son. We ask that. In his name, amen. Would you please stand for a benediction? Probably be reading this a lot this fall. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds upon and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them with his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all you who take refuge in him, Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.